You may think as a Bible teacher, ooh, I've got to be careful. I, I don't want to make an exegetical mistake here. I, I think teachers can approach the Song of Songs with a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom to explore this human-level relationship, really get into the imagery and the poetry of the book, and then always keep in mind, you, you read it with a kind of bifocal vision. You're also thinking about spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts. Learn more at crossway.org. I've got the joy today of sitting across the table from Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College, who's going to help us today as we talk about the book, The Song of Songs. Dr. Riken, thank you so much for being willing to help us teach the Bible. Yeah, thank you, Nancy. Thank you for doing these podcasts and helping people teach the Bible. And very exciting to talk about the Song of Songs with you. It is an exciting book. It's a book that I suppose a lot of people avoid teaching for a number of different reasons. You could probably come up with a number of excuses to not teach through Song of Solomon. But I know that recently you taught through this whole book over a year in chapel in at Wheaton. Talk to us about that. What was yeah, that like? So Why did you do that? I just think it's a really important book for us to be teaching. I think it is a difficult book um, because of the the sexuality and how you handle that in, a, in an appropriate way. And even just how to interpret and, and understand the book. Those are real challenges. But um, I just think our culture needs to understand intimacy. It needs to understand what a love relationship with Jesus Christ is really like. And we need to understand sex in the context of marriage. And um, all, and, and particularly young people need to understand those things. So I thought it was not only um, a good book to teach, but uh, an important, even in a way, a necessary book for us to teach. I listened through a few of your messages there at Wheaton, and I just imagined being in the room in this big chapel full of college students as you're dealing with some matters that are very significant to them, um, even some controversial things. And as I listened to it, a couple of times I thought about the beauty of the way the scripture, as you taught it, holds up such a a beautiful kind of love relationship between a man and a woman to aspire to, and how that contrasts to so many of the messages that we hear everywhere else we look. I mean, if we spend much time at all, television, movies, Netflix. We have all of these other kinds of messages about what makes a love relationship meaningful and how that happens. And it just struck me as I listened to some of your messages that it the Word of God provides such a beautiful picture to aspire to. Absolutely. And so I think um, this is an idealized picture of a love relationship. Uh, actually, we, we get to a place where the relationship seems to be broken, so it's honest about some of the challenges in a fallen world. But by and large, um, this is a celebration of the beauty of the marriage covenant, of the spiritual and sexual intimacy that a couple can enjoy. And it's highly charged. It's erotic, but it's never tawdry. It's never cheap. Uh, it's never vulgar. Um, and in a way, only the Bible could show us how to have this highly charged uh, erotic context around a marriage love relationship 
um, without degenerating into all the things our culture gener- degenerates into, whether it's um, the abusive or the pornographic or all of those things. So this book absolutely is um, a contrast to our, our culture. And I think it's a book that has you a little bit on the edge of your seat. Um, from the you know, very beginning. From the very beginning. <laughs> absolutely it does. So it's interesting you mentioned um, the context of Wheaton College. So I'm, I'm speaking to 2,000 students, among whom is my daughter. So she came back to her floor, and uh, one of the freshman women on her floor said, I, you know, I don't know, you know, this Song of Solomon, I, I don't know, you know, it's, it's almost a little embarrassing to be in this book. And she said, how do you think I feel, you know, having my dad teach about these things? But it, it turned out to be a great experience for our campus. Well, before you begin to teach the Song of Solomon, you've got a number of interpretive decisions you have to make. You've got to do some research. I know one challenge for me when I was teaching this book was I got a number of different books on about Song of Solomon, and they came, they approached it very differently. And so that it's a challenge to figure out. So let's talk about some of the interpretive decisions you have to make. Uh, first of all, it's called the book. It's called The Song of Solomon. So we have a sense at the beginning, perhaps Solomon at least has something to do with that. How, yeah, how do we work through his uh, relationship to this book? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Nancy. There, there's some decisions you have to make early on. And one of the things I like to do whenever I'm teaching the book of the Bible, a, a book of the Bible, is just read the book a lot and be reading the book well in advance of the time when I'm going to teach it. And the more comfortable you get with the overall content, then you can start making sense, really, I think, of some of the things that you find in some of the, the commentaries. So that, that, that's an approach that I would recommend. With regard to Solomon, I, I think most people, the first thing they think is, oh, uh, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, he, he probably wrote this book. But that, that quickly becomes very problematic for us. Here's a man who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. But this book is seems to be celebrating an exclusive love relationship. So So maybe... Late in his life, Solomon realized that he had made a thousand mistakes, um, maybe. But um, what, what I think is, ha- is happening with this is it is using a royal wedding, for example, between the king of Israel and his bride, Solomon as that figure, in a kind of idealized way to say that even an ordinary relationship between a young man and a bride from the country, it is elevated. It, it has a, an aspect of royalty to it. And to me, a little bit, I, I like to think of analogies. It, it helps me a lot when I'm teaching a book of the Bible to think of contemporary analogies, and then all of a sudden it's like a switch comes on and, and you really see it. So just think about in our own culture how much fascination there is with royal weddings. Uh, Prince We're William in the midst of that right Kate now. Middleton, right? So, um, and... That then, it, when you think about, like, what is the ultimate wedding? That's the ultimate wedding. It's the beautiful carriage. It's the, it's the, um, the bridal gown with the long train. Not everybody, most people, almost nobody can afford that kind of wedding. But in a way, it's kind of the ideal. And I, I think this is using Solomon as a kind of example of what an idealized wedding um, would be. That's one way to approach the book. And I, I think it helps us avoid some of the problems of thinking of Solomon as just about the last person we'd want to be taking advice from on love and romance. Even though the bride in this song occasionally refers to her husband as the king, you're saying that it's elevating this ordinary marriage to that kind of level is the goal and that it, she's not necessarily marrying a king or and specifically not king solomon yeah that, that's how i take the book and I, I think there there are some of the interpretations 
get quite complicated. Like there's this man from the country, he marries this girl from the country, um, and Solomon is almost like an intruder and it's a love triangle. It, it gets really weird, some of the interpretations, and I think they're unnecessarily complicated. I think the way that I'm talking about approaching the book is a little simpler and more accessible. I think that's maybe helpful on this question mm-hmm. of Solomon. And, and I also, if I were teaching the book, I, I'd recognize that raw context. Solomon comes in a couple of times. Chapter 4 seems to be describing the wedding in the context of a royal wedding. But I also think Solomon doesn't need to distract us too much because he doesn't come up all that much in the book anyway. Another challenge for us as modern readers, we tend to want to read a very chronological story. And it can seem challenging to try to impose onto Song of Solomon a sense of clear chronology in terms of series of events. Do you agree, or, or how do you yeah, approach no, so that? Yeah, so that's a great question, and there are a couple of things that really help me with that. I think I do think there is a kind of narrative progression overall uh, through the book. Obviously, a couple falls in love. There's very intense desire, uh, sexual and otherwise. The relationship progresses. You can trace in the poetry a growing intimacy, a growing appreciation for all of the attributes that the other person has, not merely physical, but in other areas. Then by the time you get to chapter four, it's clearly a wedding. Vows are being exchanged. Then you have what seems to be a lover's quarrel, probably in the context of a honeymoon. You know, that's uh, we're getting into that in chapter five. There's a reconciliation. And then at the end a celebration of, of love and romance, which is very much looking to the future and uh, the, the fruitfulness of the love relationship with presumably children is, is in view. So there is an overall narrative arc to the book. But if you're trying to fit each little thing into a chronology, it does get a little confusing. And here, here's what helps me immensely. This is a collection of love songs. And it's like you're reading the liner notes to an album of love songs. And as you go through it, you, you, you understand, okay, this is the story of a love relationship, but I'm, I'm not expecting a, an album of love songs to sort of tell me which month this happened. It's a little more impressionistic. It's um, giving you uh, various pictures in the form of songs of a love relationship. And I think if you think of the book that way, you bring the right set of expectations. I think a lot of our responsibility as Bible teachers is to help people understand what kind of literature this is so that they can bring the right expectations and the right interpretive tools. And to me, it just helps immensely to think of this as the liner notes to an album of love songs. That's very helpful. So you mentioned we need to understand what kind of literature it is. So we've got this poetry. It's in the context of the wisdom books. How does that context help us begin to think about how to think about this book? Yeah, that's a great question, too. So I, I think, um, and we, hopefully we can talk just a little bit more about how to approach poetry, too. Which, okay, uh, you yeah, know, that let's prom- do that. Your question prompted that for me. But in terms of wisdom literature, our hearts are pretty legalistic. So we tend to approach a lot of things in the Bible from the perspective of law. And there certainly is law in the Bible, particularly in the Torah, um, in, in a way in some of the teachings of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, things like that. There's an aspect of law there. But a lot of the Bible is, is wisdom, and it's giving us examples of everyday life issues. It's not telling us, do this and do, then do that. It's, 
it's giving us examples of how to live into a certain kind of life. And so there's a, a practical wisdom that you find in the Proverbs and other places. And you have to apply it to your own situation. So the Song of Solomon uh, definitely falls into that wisdom tradition. A lot of the wisdom literature deals a lot in images. It has a poetic quality to it, which I think helps us. We, we usually think poetry doesn't help us, but it, it helps us because um, it has a kind of flexibility that you can mm -hmm. apply to a lot of life situations. And here, the Song of Solomon comes to give us wisdom in some of the most important areas of life. Ultimately, our intimacy with God, our love relationship with Jesus Christ, but also how do we handle romance? How do we handle courtship? How do we handle sexuality? How do we handle conflict? How do we handle reconciliation? I mean, there's a lot about all of those things. So you're finding a lot of how-to in this book. Yes. Um, the, the reason I'm hesitating is because how-to, to me, that phrase means a little bit more step-by-step. -step. And the wisdom literature is... It's not as directive as that. So one, one thing I often just reflect on in the Bible, it's, it's shocking how little the Bible gives you how-tos for marriage. What it mainly gives you is a few core principles that then there's amazing flexibility for working out in the context of your relationship. So um, how-to would be a little misleading if you thought it was going to be like the how-to video that you're going to watch on YouTube that'll help you step-by-step -step put a piece of furniture together or something like that. But it's, it is in the direction of, of guidance, wise counsel, advice that you might get from a mentor, those kinds of things. One more question before we dive in to this, the book specifically in terms of context. Uh, you, you've talked some about its context of being part of wisdom literature, but it's seated in this larger story in many ways, we could say the Bible as a whole is, is a love story. Um, and we get the sense in this garden-type uh, setting of Song of Solomon, there's almost an Edenic nature to this. And so I just wonder how you relate Song of Solomon to the larger story of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's a crucial question here. And I think this is one that you were talking earlier about, what are some of the big interpretive decisions yes. that we have to make? And one of them is... Are we reading this on a human level as a human level love story? Are we reading this as a kind of metaphor or allegory for our love relationship to, to Christ or the soul's relationship to God? And I think in large measure, my answer to that question is both. Mm. And the reason it's both is not just because of what's in this this book, The Song of Songs, but it's also because of how the Bible consistently presents a love relationship between a man and a woman. And here's a simple way of thinking of it. The, the Bible begins with the story of a blind date in which Adam opens his eyes and there's Eve. And it ends with a wedding reception. You get to the end of Revelation. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. There's a celebration. The whole, the whole people of God all throughout history are part of this celebration. So one of the consistent narrative themes that runs all the way through the Bible is a love relationship between a man and a woman, which is also the, one of the main ways that the Bible talks about the love relationship that the people of God have with their God. And we, we probably don't have time to trace all of that all the way through the Bible, but there's a lot of marital imagery in the Old Testament. Uh, your maker is your husband. It's a key theme of the Old Testament. But we've been unfaithful, like a spiritual adultery. Nevertheless, 
God continues to reach out to us in love. He will not break his side of the covenant. And so he refers to his people even after they've sinned as a virgin bride. I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, you meet Jesus of Nazareth. The groom walks into the room. That's what's happening here in terms of this love relationship. And Jesus often talks about wedding suppers and the voice of the bridegroom. I mean, his self-understanding is in the context of this love relationship. And so then when you get to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, He's talking about husbands and wives, how they should relate in marriage, what the principles are. And then he says, oh, by the way, I'm I'm not actually talking about marriage. I'm talking about the relationship of Christ and the church, which to me is a way of saying that this human level love relationship is really always about the spiritual mystery of the love relationship that we have with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to see the Song of Solomon in that context. Yes, of course, it's a human level love relationship, which is talking to us about human sexuality, uh, the meaning of the marriage covenant, all of those human level things. But just for that very reason, of course, it is also, because this is always true in the Bible, also talking to us about the mystery of the soul's relationship to God. And so I don't see the Song of Songs as an allegory in which we're trying to line up every little detail to some specific detail in our love relationship to Christ. But the overall context is one of the spiritual mystery of the soul's intimacy with its Savior in the context of a a matrimonial relationship. That is so helpful. I think it can be challenging as a Bible teacher. You you become convinced and you read over it and over again. It's not allegory. Yet you see here, you know this is about clearly more than just this couple. And it is set in context of this love story of the Bible. So it can be challenging to figure out, I think, especially if you're new to this, just how far to go in terms of making this about uh, our love relationship with Christ. Yeah, and so I think that's that's a great comment, Nancy. And I think particularly if you start looking at a couple of commentaries and people have maybe a strong opinion about a particular way to, to, um, to interpret the Song of Solomon or another book, but I think it's particularly acute with the Song of Solomon. You may think as a Bible teacher, ooh, I've got to be careful. I, I don't want to make an exegetical mistake here. I, I think teachers can approach the Song of Songs with a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom to explore this human-level relationship, really get into the imagery and the poetry of the book, and then always keep in mind, you, you read it with a kind of bifocal vision. You're also thinking about spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ. And don't worry about making a lot of mistakes. Experience a lot of freedom to explore all of that in the Bible and let the human level relationship kind of do its own work and open up this spiritual relationship with God that that the book is also trying to teach you about. Don't worry about making a lot of mistakes. Have a kind of freedom. And then do it a little bit tentatively. I mean, don't, don't, you know, if you're teaching a group, don't say this is absolutely what this means, but I think this might be pointing us towards this. And then I think that gives you more freedom in, in teaching, really, to explore the book. And the Holy Spirit will, will help the book do its own work in your lives. How many messages did you do on Song of Solomon as you taught through it? I mean, you had pretty short time, maybe 20 minutes for each of your yeah, messages? Yeah, I, I, maybe 22. Okay. I kind of sometimes stretch well, had to, to 25. I had to be pretty focused. I wondered so. about that one time. I heard uh, as I listened to you, you said you'd gone over time a little bit. And I suppose when you're the president of the college, you can go long in chapel a in a way bit. that if you're a guest, you can't. <laughs> 
I don't really like to go long in chapel because... <laughs> messes everything up. Well, I think you have, in any teaching context, you have a kind of unwritten contract with your, your audience, and people bring certain expectations. I think it is fine to go long sometimes. If I know that I'm going to do that, I'll typically say that at the beginning. Say, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to take a little more time. And then people have, they, they're, they're right along with you. They, they, but on a college campus, you know, people have to go to class and, yeah. and other things. You, you have to show respect for other people in your community, so that's part of it. So too. how many did, messages did you yeah. do on so, this eight-chapter book, right? Yeah, I did seven messages, which is going a little more rapidly than I would have liked to. I can, I can actually, uh, let me just give yeah, a little outline. Yeah, show us outline. the breakdown. I'll yeah. give a little outline of what I, I did, and I'll give the title and the verses for what I did. I love you always, forever. I gave a kind of introductory overview to things. Then I started the beginning of the book, You're the One That I Want, uh, <laughs> chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And by the way, when I was teaching through this, I did use a lot of song titles, kind of references like that, which I think helps put us in the context of, of this book. I mean, you have to understand, wedding celebrations in ancient Israel, they were week-long affairs, and I think this became one of the main... This, this was the kind of singing that people did in that context. This, these were the popular songs in ancient Israel. You know, they didn't have a DJ at a <laughs> wedding rehearsal, or at a wedding reception, obviously. But if they had had a DJ, these were the tracks, so put it that way. Then underneath the apple tree, chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 7, you have this beautiful picture of the lover as, as an apple tree. It's an amazing metaphor. I'm for you and you're for me. Let me Cha- ask you a quick yeah, question yeah. about this. I'm looking at the ESV, right? and the ESV has headlines over different sections she others she he to give us a sense of who is speaking now an interpreter i think has put those onto the text that they're not necessarily in the text um any yeah, so, about that? so I think so. Uh, overall, I think they're helpful. I don't think they're 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 too misleading. For one thing, some of the tip-offs here are the pronouns that are used, which in Hebrew have a gender, and if you're an English reader, you won't know those. So actually, I think overall there's helpful information here without getting too locked into it. And I do think th- this is this is a like a musical. So different people have their lines, and they they sing their songs, and it's. A lover and her beloved. There's a kind of chorus. It's I think of it as the bridesmaids. Uh, you know these young women of Israel. A couple of places, uh, the young woman's brothers come in. They're not mm-hmm. as helpful. No. You know, uh, older brothers aren't always. Um, so they have a, a few lines here. But I think it's po- you know pointing us to something okay. um, significant. And another thing I'll just say. The best, I think the best way to read the Song of Solomon would be in a single column, not a dual column Bible, with a lot of white space on the page. And I think when we read poetry in a double column Bible, and it's all kind of crowded together, it doesn't have a chance to breathe. And we're reading it the way we would read maybe an article in the newspaper, and you're reading for the content. That's not how you read poetry. I, so key, key experience for me, I was at the Bodmer Library on, on Lake Geneva in, in Switzerland, which is one of the world's most amazing libraries. And there was Song of Songs text, handwritten, illuminated manuscript, medieval, maybe 7th century. 
and the, t the text was maybe only a quarter of what was on the page. There was a lot of white space around it. And I saw that, and it, it just gave a kind of restfulness and peacefulness and leisureliness to the reading. And I said, that's how you need to read the Song mm -hmm. of Solomon, that, that, kind of, that kind of pace. And some of our Bibles kind of push us to race a little quicker because of the double column and all the words that are crowded on the well, page. Well, I think that's a good word to us as teachers, too, because... I know sometimes if I've got to prepare something to teach, you know, you've got a limited amount of time and you dive in and you jump immediately. I've got to try to figure out what this is saying and then what am I going to say about it to someone else? And it sounds like to me that a great way to approach um, getting a sense of this book is a little bit more leisurely approach a absolutely absolutely that's true and i also think another thing particularly if you if you're trying to read the song of solomon with a bifocal vision human level love relationship uh divine level romance you you may feel the pressure as a teacher to kind of unlock the code for people and actually if you just take the time let people probe and explore the images here. What, what life experiences does this remind them of? Why are we talking about pomegranates here? And just entering into the images, the images eventually will do their own work, but we have to get into the images and that takes some time and, and concentration. And I'm talking about something that's different than sort of intellectually unlocking a code. It's even responding emotionally, visually, uh, to the images that are in the Bible, and taking time to do that with your with your students, I think, is very important. Oh, excellent, thank you. I'm sorry, I interrupted you as you were beginning to move through kind of the organization of the book. Yeah, so there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we could oh, talk about this I know. for hours. So, and you talk about one thing, then you want to talk know, about another exactly. thing. So, I think I was getting around to saying I taught chapter two, verse eight, to chapter three, verse five. I'm for you, and you you're for me. That's the mutuality of their love relationship. Then, um, royal wedding which runs 3-6 through 5-1. Solomon, quote-unquote, arrives for the wedding all the way through the beginning of chapter 5. Okay, so that, that was a big chunk. You said 3-1 through 5? It's 3-6 through 5-1. That is three, a big chunk. That's you a could, big chunk. Yeah, you could, the royal you could, wedding. Yeah, okay. You could break it down a little bit. By the time you get to 5-1, there's a kind of celebration of this love relationship. Then uh, there's a lover's quarrel, chapter 5, verse 2 to 6, verse 3. What I called the duet after the fight, <laughs> chapter 6, verse 4 to chapter 8, verse 4. And then I called the last section from 8.5 to 8.14, Forever Yours. Now, in order to do it as rapidly as that, I had, you know, some of the edges are a little fuzzy. Some things could have been a separate message I kind of lumped together. So you just have to, sometimes you have to make some of those choices. One, one thing that I would suggest people teaching this book is because of the fluidity of an album like this, not having such hard breaks between the sections you're teaching Get a little bit of a running start by remembering where you were at the end of the last section because there is a fluidity to the book. And so I think picking up on that even in your teaching would be important. Let's talk a little bit about these uh, dreams. Maybe that's another challenge, isn't it, in trying to grasp and then communicate this book? It is a big challenge. So here, here's an example. Chapter 5, verse 2. Here's what the bride says. I slept, but my heart was awake. <laughs> So we're in a dream context. She's sleeping, but there's a wakefulness in that sleeping. And then, then there's what, what plays out here 
is, I, I think, a lover's quarrel. The man comes, he's been away, now he comes home in the middle of the night, he's ready for sexual intimacy. You know, she was ready for that, but now she's asleep. He's a little petulant. Now he's, she's not ready for him, he's not ready for her. He leaves. And there's this conflict that eventually gets reconciled. And I think recognizing that it's in a dream context really helps. And there are other places in the Bible that are like this, where there's a vision. And if I wake up from a dream in the morning and I remember it, I can tell you some things about it. But then if you start asking me questions about it, there are things that I don't know or don't remember or I can't explain them because they don't totally make sense. It's a little impressionistic. What's as important is not, not just the details, but how you felt about them. And so I think bringing some of those dream expectations to an account of a dream in the Song of Songs is also really important. Mm-hmm. You were beginning to talk about things like pomegranates. Um, and trying to understand the imagery of this book. And, of course, what scares many people away from teaching this book is uh, some of the imagery that does become very erotic. How did you handle that with your 2,000 people in Wheaton Chapel? No, so that's a great question. Just a couple of comments on the imagery. So earlier I said let people just explore the imagery and make, make sense of it just from their own experiences. So, I mean, for example, I'll just give an example. And there's so many examples you can give in the Song of Songs. Occasionally there are references to turtle doves. Actually, that's an analogy that works really well in our culture. You almost always see mourning doves in our culture in pairs. You, you usually don't see them alone. Occasionally you do, but there, there's usually the other ones nearby. They, they are the lovebirds. That, that is the kind, and that works for us because it's very similar in our, in our own culture. Um, some of the images like pomegranate, for example, you know, we think, pomegranate we're thinking about antioxidants and you know a really delicious juice and things like that there you have to know a little bit about pomegranate and how pomegranate's made and how it was understood maybe in the ancient world pomegranates are just packed full of these seeds it's an amazing image of fruitfulness it's like the most fruitful abundant because the seeds are really obvious do you know that just from looking at cutting open a pomegranate? You, you could probably figure it out, but it also would help to know how did the ancient world look at this? How was this symbol used? So there is a place for doing some research, picking at least one really good commentary that opens some of this up for people. So I'm striking a little bit of a balance between making as much sense as you can of the images and then doing some research to really unpack them at a, at a deeper level. So I think that's one thing um, to do with these images. A couple things that were key for me. Number one is that really understanding when we're talking about a sexual relationship here, we're talking about it in the context of a marriage. By the time you get to chapter four, there's a lot of image, there's a lot of terminology around the bride. Uh, this is what the bride, you know, in, in references to a bride and, and at a certain point even some what seem to be some vows that are spoken. So all of this has to be understood in the context. Uh, I, I like what uh, Doug O'Donnell says. Doug O'Donnell, by the way, is one of the very best commentaries for teachers to use on this book. He says, this is erotic poetry set within the ethical boundaries of the marriage bed. So there's a context for this erotic poetry. You can understand why um, some of the rabbis said, look, you, you shouldn't read this book until you're 30. You know, you can understand that because it's, it's so sexually charged. You can also understand why when Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons on the Song of Solomon 
to the monks in his monastery. It was all at the spiritual level. You can understand that. But um, one thing I like to point out is that this often brings us kind of right up to that point of sexual intimacy, and then it closes the door and pulls the shade. Mm -hmm. It brings us close enough that uh, we get a sense of the anticipation of the intimacy but it doesn't cross the the it doesn't cross the line into what is actually pornographic. And, and erotic poetry is supposed to work that way. It it has a way of arousing the desire, but it it's not it's not cheap. It's not tawdry. It it's not all the things that it would be for us. It's why you need the Holy Spirit to help write this kind of poetry. One of the surprising things about this book, and I wonder how you handled it when you taught it, is. The initiative shown by the woman. I absolutely love the comment you're making, and I think it's really important. So, if you ask me, the, I'll ask a different question. If you okay. if you ask me the question, is the woman in this relationship traditional or progressive? It would be really hard to answer that question because, on the one hand, she clearly has a respect for the princely leadership of the man that she has fallen in love with, and one of the things she, you know, she uh, admires his his leadership. She says, his banner over me is love. That's a military image. It's like the, the flag or military standard out in the field, and she's bringing herself under that banner. On the other hand, here's a book where she takes the initiative right at the beginning, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She is unabashed in expressing her own desire, which is not merely relational, although it is deeply relational. But it, Long it, passages of admiring each other's bodies. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of mutuality here. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. Another thing that I think strongly emphasizes the equality of the man and the woman in this passage is you have a couple of examples of what, this would be the literary term for it, an emblematic blazon, which is... A love poem in which you sort of catalog the attributes of your beloved, and they are expressed in terms of the physical body. These are, you know, this is one of the things that's kind of well known about the Song of mm -hmm. Solomon. You know, the the two fawns and the Tower of Alabaster and and those kinds of things. They're not merely visual. They're not meant to be primarily visual. If you tried to put them all together visually, it would look really weird. The images are are trading on other aspects, not not merely the visual point I want to make is he praises her this way she praises him that way and so if you look at the book as a whole there's a kind of equality and 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 you would be hard-pressed to say who gets more airtime here they they both are expressing fully the the virtues and and values of the other person so there's a lot of mutuality here in their relationship and I I think both a respect for leadership but also an equal partnership Certainly an equal desire for sexual intimacy is, is part of the book as a whole. And then at a certain point, I don't know if I'll be able to find um, exactly this verse, but it's after they're married, they have this kind of intimacy, and she says something like it, you know, it goes down smoothly for my beloved. She actually is enjoying the fact that her beloved, her lover, is taking pleasure in their physical intimacy. So there's a tremendous sense of self-giving love that comes more and more to the fore um, in the book as a whole. I think it's a tremendous model, both for men and for women. It's like a lot of things in the Bible. The Bible always confronts your culture and corrects your culture wherever your culture is wrong. And so here is a book that is surely the sexiest book in the Bible. <laughs> 
but it's not a pornographic book. And so it's cr- correcting and critiquing our culture. If you get, uh, if you have a very, some might say traditional sense of a love relationship in which it's not really an equal partnership because the man takes leadership in ways that diminish the woman. That's not the picture here at all. And this book will correct, will correct that perspective. So as you worked your way through the book, how did you get to Christ? And did you seek to, I think you said you did uh, seven messages yes. on this? So did you seek to get there in every time? Because this is, a, this is one of those books. I mean, the closest this comes to talking directly about God is in this final chapter when it talks about love being you know, the flame of the Lord. So um, we know that Christ, when he said, uh, he pointed to the law and the prophets and said it was essentially about him. So how did you do that with this? Yeah, book? so every time I teach the Bible, I want to uh, bring out our, our relationship to Christ in one way or another. And I, I want to do that in a way that is unique to that passage that really comes from the imagery or the, the teaching or the content um, of that specific passage. And uh, just a comment, you're right, we don't get, God isn't mentioned here until chapter 8, but in a kind of climactic way, and I think in a way that says, look, you should really understand this whole relationship. This is where this whole relationship has been going um, all the way along. So, I mean, just to give a couple of examples. So, how is Jesus Christ the apple tree of chapter 2? So, here is this image of the groom as a place of refuge, of provision, of rest. I mean, all the things that we're, that the soul is looking for in a relationship with Jesus Christ. What does it mean to say, I am my beloved's and he is mine? You know, how, how does that relate to my relationship to Jesus Christ? I belong to him. I belong to him in this love relationship. Um, he also, in a sense, belongs to me because he has offered himself to me. So, I mean, there's a lot that you can talk about, a lot that you can talk about there. Or even this, you know, all this royal wedding imagery you know, is it Psalm 45 that's also a wedding song, what, what a lit scholar would call an epithalamian? Um, so this idea of a love relationship with the king that has this wedding context, I mean, that, that's part of our relationship to, to Jesus Christ as well. And very importantly, and we haven't talked about it, this is, this is not a book that is only for married people. It's not a book that's only for people preparing for marriage. Because the Bible refers to all of us as brides. And so I think we have to have a certain flexibility in how we approach the imagery of the Bible. Even though I am a man, I need to understand myself in the context of this bridal imagery. I think that's challenging for a lot of men. Very challenging. But it's also challenging for a woman to recognize that she's a son of God in the sense that she Mm -hmm. receives an inheritance, which is the way the New Testament Mm -hmm. um, talks about it. But I, I think it's also important because then you you realize God may not call me to a marriage relationship. And this is true for anybody. He does not call me to a marriage relationship for my entire life. There is a time in my life when I am single. That's true for all of us. And in that time when I am a single person, I am also called to a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ. So the imagery of this book and the intimacy it offers is very much uh, for me as well. So I think we we all need to find ourselves um, in this book, and we all can find ourselves in this book. That brings up something I was thinking about. I mean, you you were speaking to 2,000 mostly single people. And, and we're always so concerned, or at least I suppose we should be in the church, because sometimes it can seem as if marriage is the ideal, which leaves single people 
in our churches feeling like somehow their life is less than ideal. So how do we teach a book like this when, in a sense, it is presenting an ideal and yet not really alienate the single people we're teaching? Yeah, no, I think it's challenging. I think it's, it's also challenging depending on where a single person is in his or her contentedness with that calling. So I think that challenge um, can be lesser or greater depending on our, our life situation. I think it's important early on just to make the point exactly that I was making, which is this is a book for all of us in our, in our relationship to Jesus Christ. And I, I think really understanding that that is the real thing and that our, our earthly relationships, family relationships, marriage relationships are analogous to what is the real thing. We usually think it's the other way. There's this human level marriage and God kind of appropriates that as a metaphor for our relationship with him. It's actually, this is the relationship he wants to have with us and does have with us. And he has given us at the human level a way of understanding that. And so understanding what the real thing is. So, you know, just to give another example, when the Bible talks about us as brothers and sisters and uses this family imagery in the New Testament. It's not saying that we are like a family or that the family is an analogy for us. We are a family. That is what we are. Yes. And that's an eternal relationship. So I think getting that, you know, frontwards instead of backwards is important. So I think acknowledging that the book may be challenging for people in various ways, I think can be an important part of teaching the book. Does this book lend itself at all to making application to those who struggle with same-sex attraction? Yes, I think it does. So um, I think it does because I think it helps us understand that all of us are called in various areas of life to sexual sacrifice and to offering our sexuality as a gift to God. And all of us have that calling, whether we're married or single, um, both aspects of um, self-discipline, self-control, sacrifice in, in a way. And that's true for all of us. It's a challenge for all of us. It's a temptation area of temptation for all of us. And so this, the imagery of this book is really for all of us in that sense, in that we, we give ourselves completely to God in, in Christ. Um, I do think it is a hard book for those who experience same-sex attraction maybe to connect with in an emotional level because the it's so strong in terms of the sexual desire for somebody of the opposite sex. If that's not your life experience, then that can be a special challenge um, in interpreting the book. But because it is ultimately a book about love and ultimately a book about intimacy and ultimately a book about our relationship to Christ, it's, it's for every believer. So your sermon series you did on Song of Solomon, I understand it's going to become a book, The Love of Loves in the Song of Songs. Let me just mention, Nancy, because I don't want to miss the opportunity. If somebody is teaching this book, I strongly recommend the commentaries by Doug O'Donnell and by Ian Duguid, D-U-G-U-I-D. One of these is in the Reformed Expository commentary. The other one is in uh, Crossway's uh, Preaching the Word series. They're both super and very complimentary. And um, boy, if you're teaching, um, you know, sometimes even one com- one good, really good commentary is in, in a sense all, all you need. My book is a little shorter. So those books are, are more in-depth. The one thing my little book has is, is or will have is a great 
uh, study guide uh, written by John Nielsen. So it's, it's really designed for small group use oh, and really great discussion starters, things like that. In terms of what to take away from the book, one is understanding the beauty of sexuality as designed by God. I think a lot of uh, Christian young people sort of know the what, the, the do's and do nots of what the Bible teaches about sexuality, but they don't really understand the why, and they don't really understand the beauty of the why. And what better way to really capture that and understand that than in the, a love story, in uh, a love story that has a lot of beauty to it, rather than uh, getting a list of do's and don'ts about sexuality and here's where the line is and all of that, wouldn't you rather just listen to a really great album of love songs? Well, the Bible in, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit has provided that. I also think a big takeaway is what kind of love relationship does my Savior want to have with me? With He wants to have something that has this level of passion, intimacy, desire, and hopefully this is a book that awakens within us a longing for a deeper love relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's, I think, those are maybe two of the biggest uh, takeaways from the Song of Songs. This has been so helpful. Uh, You've really handed us some good tools for working in this book. Why don't you close this way? Would you speak directly to those who are listening thinking perhaps about teaching through this book, perhaps with a word of encouragement, maybe instruction? Yeah, I mean, the main thing I'd say is you can do it. Don't hesitate to, to teach the Song of Songs or really any other difficult part of the Bible. And I, I find sometimes those are the most rewarding teaching opportunities. And um, don't be afraid to get into the text of the Bible itself and do your best, do your best with your students to really wrestle with the biblical text. Get the help of one or two reliable guides, and we've mentioned a couple of, you know, a couple of those, to support and supplement the kind of teaching that you're doing. And I'll also say, maybe just a further encouragement, this topic is too important for us to be leaving it alone. The Song of Songs was written for the people of God all the way through the history of the church, but it's never been a more important book than it is right now, particularly in Western cultures, in a very sex-saturated culture, particularly for young people. Sometimes it's the things that, that seem challenging and difficult that are the things that we really need to lean into and that are most important for us. So that's, that's the encouragement that I would give. Thank you so much, Dr. Riken. Thank you, Nancy. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible Christian Books and Tracts, including the commentary Dr. Riken mentioned, The Song of Solomon, An Invitation to Intimacy by Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And then in February 2019, Dr. Riken's book, The Love of Loves in the Song of Songs. You can learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org. 